Hello, and welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill. This is episode 80. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. It's August. We made it. Woohoo! Two months of the summer down, one more to go, which means one more month to pack in your Hawaiian-shirted, flip-flopped, bikini, pineapple, margarita fun before the dead of winter. Well, fall's in there too, but mostly what's coming is the dead of winter. As we know, winter is coming. HBO tells us that all the time. So what's new, everybody? We got a little bit of news this week. I guess this probably isn't hot off the presses news by the time you're hearing it. I'm recording this episode a little early. You're hearing it if you're listening to it right away when it comes out uh, on August 6th. I'm recording it a little bit earlier than I normally would uh, because of some upcoming travel. But I did notice a few newsy type things that I wanted to mention before we get into the meat of this week's episode. If you know anything about me from listening to this show, you know that along with Atari, I'm a Doctor Who nerd. So, of course, I am a subscriber to the BritBox streaming service. This is a service where, yeah, I'm not sure, 6 or $7 a month, you can get a crap ton of British programming. Some people might think that's what you go to BBC America for, but it's not really. You go to BBC America for the Planet Earth show, Top Gear, and Doctor Who, and Broadchurch, and a plethora of Star Trek reruns. You don't get a lot of other British programming. Well, or from Black, I guess. But BritBox has a lot of classic... I guess I've looked more at the classic stuff, but I, I think they have some modern programming too. But they have all of the available classic Doctor Who, and they are also undertaking a project to restore some of the lost episodes. If you're a Doctor Who nerd, you, you know what this is about. But as a brief summary for those of you who maybe aren't, as nerdy as me. Back in the 60s, when they made television, not just Doctor Who, they didn't worry so much about keeping the video. Uh, video was expensive. They reused the tape because it was cheaper. So sometimes, and, and no one, you know, no one had DVDs or certainly not streaming services or even, uh, you know, home VHS players. So no one was thinking in terms of, of watching this stuff again. You ran it on TV, maybe you reran it once, and that was about it. No one was going to watch this again. So they destroyed a lot of video and recorded over it. And that's what happened with a fair amount of early, early 1960s era Doctor Who. Some of it over the decades since they have found, largely in other countries, because uh, it was a successful TV show, so they would sell the rights to other countries to air the show. So sometimes they could find a copy somewhere else, and they've done that for a lot of shows. But there are still a number of episodes that are still lost, but they have the audio. So what they've done, what some people have done sort of casually, is use still images and photos from you know particular episodes and show the pictures and play the audio. So BritBox has undertaken a project to do a very polished version of what a lot of amateurs have done over the years, just for fun. And they are going to start debuting these programs on BritBox. The first one that they're going to roll out is The Wheel in Space. It's a six-part story. Uh, Doctor Who was serialized back then in basically half-hour episodes once a week. 
In this one, The Wheel in Space, uh, starring Patrick Troughton as the second Doctor, uh, was a six-parter, and they're going to drop it on BritBox in September. BritBox has been working on collecting missing uh, as many missing episodes as possible, looking for the negatives, the distribution prints of old episodes. BritBox says that 50 classic Doctor Who episodes have been recovered so far, and another 97 of the 253 episodes from the show's first six years on the air are still missing. Those short clips do exist here and there. So BritBox is going to assemble all of this available material into basically watchable form to try and, and you know create a semblance of of full episodes, even though obviously it's not the full video. So as a Doctor Who nerd, I'm excited about this. I'm looking forward to it. I've watched all of Classic Who. I've watched some of the sort of uh, amateur or, or not officially licensed, I guess, recons, you know, reconstructions. And they've been kind of fun. I've never watched one of Wheel in Space, I don't think. So I am kind of excited to see that. It sounds like BritBox is trying to put some real production value into it to make it feel as much like a real television episode, you know, as much as possible, even though it's, it's obviously still images. Although I guess somewhere in this article it said that they had maybe a few seconds of actual video that I'm sure they'll, they'll incorporate into that. So there you go. There's, uh, there, that's Doctor Who Corner for this week. In other news, if you live or travel through Wisconsin, and you've often wondered why when you, you know, patronize a local business in the uh, fine dairy state, People randomly start uh, urinating and forget who they are when you, all you've done is ask them which aisle the bread is found. Well, I may have an answer for you. Turns out, in Wisconsin, they microchip their employees. Maybe I should explain. In River Falls, Wisconsin, Three Square Market is going to be the, the first company in the United States to provide employees with implantable microchips. Uh, starting Actually, it's already started. You know, the upgrade to Cybermen has already begun. Hey, I managed to throw in another Doctor Who reference in there. According to a press release, Three Square Market is going to offer the technology to all employees during a chip party on August 1. That sounds like a key party for nerds. The program is optional. For now. I added the for now part. Over 50 staff members are expected to be voluntarily chipped between the thumb and forefinger underneath the skin. The chip uses the same NFC chip technology used in credit cards. The company said there is no GPS tracking in the chips because the technology is similar to an office key card. Three Square Market builds and manages break room vending machine systems that utilize kiosks and software for purchases. This is just the beginning, folks. It's optional today, and it's this uh, this vending machine place today. But you know, tomorrow it'll be the schools, it'll be government offices, it'll be... Uh, you know, you name it, and this voluntary program is going to be offered. And then pretty soon, it'll be expanded. There'll be more stuff on the chip. And then after a while, somebody in the accounting division of the company will realize, hey, we can save money by doing this to everybody. And so then it becomes not so much optional. I don't know. I'm not particularly paranoid by nature, but this makes me a little nervous. I'll be honest. So if you have any thoughts about microchipping your employees, or if you yourself have been voluntarily microchipped for fun or profit, let me know. In other technology-ish news, turns out that Twitch is going to stream the 80s arcade gaming show Starcade. All of us of a certain age remember Starcade. It was sort of the granddaddy of 
sitting there watching other people play video games. And this is apparently not a reboot. It's not a new show. It's literally the 123 episodes of the original Starcade that ran on TBS from 1982 to 1984 with classic games like Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, uh, Galaga, or Galaga, and Centipede. Shout Factory's Twitch channel is where this is going to happen. Uh, this article that I'm looking at in Engadget points out that you can watch episodes on YouTube pretty easily, but the partners in this venture are promising that the copies will be better than any of the blurry recordings that you can pull up on YouTube. They digitized episodes from the original master tapes to ensure the best quality possible. So that might be kind of fun. I do kind of remember Starcade. I think when I did Food Fight on uh, the 2016 Christmas episode, I think I mentioned that I'd never got to play Food Fight as a kid, but I had vivid memories of seeing it on a show like this, but I can't remember what the, remember what the name of it was. And now I realize, well, it was Starcade, of course. So I'm kind of curious to check this out. Let's see, when is it supposed to come out? Okay, by the end of August, Twitch is going to have this. So uh, let me know what you think about this. What are your Starcade memories? Are you going to sit down and devote some of your retro time to stream some of these? So what do you think, basically? All right, and I believe that is all the news. So let's move on to this week's game. The centipedes are coming. Get your fingers moving fast and the spiders out to get you. Do you think that you can last? You can shoot him in the middle. He will only break in two. And the flames are even faster if you look away and through. See the scorpion a dance and he can really help you score. But the centipede's immortal keeps coming back for more. Centipede is from Atari and it's faster than a jet. If you're looking for some action, it's the game you gotta get. Centipede. Centipede from Atari, 1982. All right, then. Uh, that's the game that we're looking at this week. Let's just talk a little bit about how to play it. So you see, you've got... Hold on. Doing something a little different this week. If you want to hear my review of the game, the typical thing we do on one of these episodes, go back and listen to my episode 11, which is where I talked about how to play Centipede and my thoughts on the game. But this week, we're going to take a little different approach to the world of Centipede, but we'll get to that in a minute. First, a little refresher. I probably don't have to tell you guys much about Centipede. Centipede is a classic, of course. It was a, a fixed-shooter arcade game produced by Atari in 1980, designed by Ed Logg and uh, Dona Bailey, where you fight off centipedes, spiders, scorpions, and fleas, completing a round after eliminating the centipede that winds down the playing field. It was ported to the 2600, the 5200, the 7800, and the Atari 8-bit family, under the Atari Soft label, the game was sold for the Apple II, Commodore 64, ColecoVision, uh, VIC-20, IBM PC, Intellivision, and TI-99. Dona Bailey was one of the few female game, player, game programmers in the industry, and Log stated that the game was intended to attract women players, and Bailey said, I really like pastels, I really wanted it to look different, to be visually arresting. Bailey and Log succeeded in their goal. Centipede was one of the first arcade coin-operated games, to have significant female player base, after Pac-Man. In 1983, Softline readers named Centipede ninth on the magazine's top 30 list of Atari 8-bit programs by popularity. The game received the award for 1984 Best Computer Action Game at the 5th Annual Archie Awards, where the judges described it as packing a real roundhouse punch, and suggesting that some insist that the Centipede Atari cartridge is the best homemade arcade edition you can buy. In a 1984 video review of the Apple II version of the game, Bill Kunkel and Arnie Klatz commented that the graphic limits of the Atari crimp the style, 
and expressed disappointment in the game's sluggish interfacing with trackball controllers. Trackball, I know, is a hotly debated topic among Atari fans, so let me know what you think about the uh, the whole trackball centipede thing. Those concerns certainly didn't tarnish the legacy of Centipede, though. It remains a very popular game. It was included in the Sega Genesis Arcade Classics release. There was a Game Gear game under the same title and a Master System compilation titled the Arcade Smash Hits. It was released for Microsoft Windows, uh, the Game Boy, Midway Games published Arcade's Greatest Hits, the Atari Collection 1 for the Sega Saturn, uh, the NES, and the PlayStation, on and on and on. Both the Arcade and 2600 versions were released again in 2016 as part of a, the Atari Vault, which I still have not checked out. Uh, although now that I know the arcade version of Centipede is on there, I may have to do that. Centipede was followed in 1982 by Millipede, which was somewhat less successful. In 1992, Atari Games developed a prototype of an arcade game called Arcade Classics for their 20th anniversary, which included Missile Command 2, which I didn't know was a thing, and Super Centipede with co-op two-player mode. In 1998, Hasbro-owned Atari Interactive released a new version of the game for the PC, PlayStation, and Dreamcast, which plays very differently than the original game, with free movement around the map, 3D graphics, and a campaign which can be played in single-player or multiplayer mode. The original version of Centipede is available in this version with slightly updated graphics. In 2011, Centipede Infestation was released for the Nintendo 3DS and Wii, which was a more story-driven remake that was set in a post-apocalyptic world and is played from a top-down perspective. It also makes use of motion controls such as using the Wii Remote pointer to determine which direction to shoot or the 3DS touch screen to quickly change weapons. Players can also grow plants that can assist them in battle. There have been a whole slew of clones, there was even a board game, and in March 2017 IDW Publishing announced that a new board game based on Centipede was in development. The game will be co-developed by John Gilmore and Cardboard Fortress Games and is scheduled to be released in fall 2017. We will have to keep an eye on that and see how it sells, see what the game's like, maybe get some of you guys to play it and tell me what you think. Centipede appears in the film Pixels. In May 2016, it was announced that Emmett Furla Oasis Films had closed a deal to partner with Atari to produce and finance both Centipede and Missile Command, and I am still waiting for confirmation that I am indeed writing the screenplay for both of those films. Some of you old-timers like me will remember that there was a pack-in comic of Centipede put out by DC back in the day, which purported to tell the story of Centipede and featured uh, a little, I think it was a little elf named Oliver, who got into all sorts of hijinks, and there were wizards and magic wands and fairies, I think, and mushrooms and, and the whole thing to try and explain the story of Centipede. So it's clear that Centipede has had a life beyond that original coin-op game. And now that we've talked about what Centipede was, we're going to talk a little bit about what Centipede is now. Specifically, there's a new comic book series from Dynamite Entertainment called, not surprisingly, Centipede. Issue number one came out on July 12th. I read it. It's fantastic. Issue number two comes out about a week after this episode drops. The comic is being written by Max Bemis, and the artist for the comic is Owen Marin. Comic fans might know him from his work on the Sons of Anarchy comic. As I said, I think the comic is really good. It's got a dark, apocalyptic feel, not surprisingly, but it's it's taking an interesting take on the story of Centipede. I don't want to say a whole lot. I know issue one has been out for a while. We tried to avoid spoilers in the interview that you're about to hear, 
and I don't want to say too much here in case you guys haven't read it, but let me just say that I think following Dale Trell on his quest is going to be very interesting. I had a great time recently talking with Owen about his approach to drawing comic books and a little bit about Centipede specifically. He was kind enough to give me some insight into his artistic process and just a little peek into literally some centipede that he was drawing when I called him. So that was fun. And I think it's time for you guys to have some fun too. So after the break, you'll hear my conversation with comic book artist Owen Marin. Uh, hello, may I speak to Owen Marin, please? Yeah, speaking. Uh, Owen, this is Bill Pepper calling from the Atari Bytes podcast. How are you? How's it, how's it going, man? How's things? Doing great. And yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Just working away here. <laughs> uh, great. Uh, on another uh, issue of Centipede, by chance? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's all that I can work on these days, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I just started actually uh, laying out the third issue. So uh, I'm just kind of doing the breakdowns at the moment, uh, listening to some jazz in the background. So it's nice, kind of relaxed day, you know, nothing, nothing too intense. Well, there you go. Uh, here, I'll give you a chance to take a break from Centipede uh, so that you can talk about Centipede. So. <laughs> Excellent. I like the sound of that, yeah. Uh, so, like I said, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, taking a little time out of your Saturday, although it sounds like it's a, a work day for you. Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> there's no such thing as weekends in uh, the comics world, unfortunately. You know, it all kind of bleeds into each other, for sure. I suppose, I suppose. Um, well, it, as we start out, I, what, the first question I like to ask, since this is an Atari-themed podcast that I do, I feel compelled to ask you, uh, uh, Owen, have you played Atari today? Uh, I have not, unfortunately, and you're going to... You're going to hate me for this, but I, I don't think I've ever played an Atari game, actually. Uh, I think that's a bit sacrilegious, I'll just say. <laughs> that, that was my, you anticipated my next question, uh, which was, it, oh, okay. <laughs> is, is Atari, a th you answered it already, uh, Atari hasn't really been a thing in your life, I guess. Um, uh, unfortunately, no. Kind of like, I only, I mean, I grew up in the 90s, and um, I think the oldest consoles uh, I ever had access to were, you know, Sega Mega Drive and a Super Nintendo Entertainment System, you know? Wait, was so, that really uh, I just, I mean... Were you a video game player at all, really, or? Oh, yes, <laughs> for sure, yeah. Uh, games, yeah, dominated, you know, my childhood. Uh, I was, uh, there was always some form of console uh, in the house, you know. Uh, just, unfortunately, it was never an Atari. Sure. Um, so, given that that's the case, what, what drew you to this project, Centipede, such an iconic Atari game? Um, good question. Um, I suppose so. Kevin Kevin uh, Kentner, who is the uh, editor on uh, my book, he's also the editor on Sword Quest. Um, he reached out to me um, after I had finished up my last gig and on um, Sons of Anarchy Redwood Original, and he saw that I was looking for work. So he kind of basically pitched me as like, "Hey, we've got you know a bunch of Atari kind of games uh, we're doing comics of, and uh, would you be interested in doing it?" Like you know, and to be fair, I hadn't actually heard of Centipede prior to that. So I did, you know, my research, and it looked really cool. I mean, you know, you know yourself, there's not a whole lot, you know, story-wise going on. Right. Uh, but the the way it was pitched to me is kind of what hooked me, you know, and, you know, Max's idea of taking this, uh, this video game and turning it into, like, a post-apocalyptic lone survivor tale. Uh, I think that's kind of what really drew me to it. Um, I mean, it's also kind of cool to take something uh, and adapt it in a completely, you know, out-there uh, way as well. 
Absolutely. Now, had you worked with Max before? I had not. Um, I had heard, actually some people I know had worked with him before, and they always said he's an absolutely right, really, really cool dude. Uh, and I, I read some of his stuff uh, after that to kind of get a, a feel for you know the kind of things he likes to write, to, to write rather. And um, yeah, uh, so no, this is my first time working with him, and it's a uh, it's a joy so far. Great. Uh, do you know Do you know uh, how many issues there are going to be that you're going to work on, or? Um, I think I I can't say for certain, so don't quote me on this. But sure. um, I think it it was pitched as a, a five issue uh, mini series originally. Um, so I think I'm drawing a third issue at the moment, so, uh, we'll see how it goes. I think, I mean, the concept is quite finite. I think, um, you can really expand, you know, this kind of lone, lone survivor scenario for too long, but you know, I've seen things <laughs> done that I've seen things done differently, so you never know what way it'll go. Uh, it's definitely for, you know, five issues, I'd say at least. Okay. Uh, as we're recording this, uh, you know, it's mid July, of course, issue one is out now. I've seen it. It looks great. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Oh, awesome. Thanks. Um, I guess I'm curious when you work on something like Centipede, which is obviously a, a known thing uh, from the video games, and you worked on Sons of Anarchy, which is a known thing. Um, how do you approach something that that's already got a, a look of its own from another medium and, and turn it into a, a comic? Uh, good question. So yeah, with Sons of Anarchy, um, obviously it's based on a TV show, very well-known TV show. Uh, all these actors is, exist in real life. So uh, before I began that project, I actually had to complete a, um, I suppose a likeness test. I had to do a test page and kind of show, you know, how I was going to draw the characters because the uh, show creator, Kurt Sutter, uh, did actually um, overlook the comics um, development. So I did a kind of couple of character turnarounds and sketches just to kind of show that, you know, I can... I can I can nail these guys. You know, I'm not. I, in the end, I didn't really end up doing you know 100% likenesses because personally, I'm not really into doing that too much. You know, I want to kind of have a bit of my own uh, cartooning style in there as well. Uh, but they were happy with the you know the halfway point I met them at. Uh, so I kind of got to do my own thing as well, which is cool. And also with that comic, it was a prequel, so it was set kind of 20 years before the actual uh, event of the show. So I had a bit of kind of creative liberty to uh, de-age the characters, you know, and, you know, I kind of actually used, um, say, in the case of, like, Ron Perlman, I kind of went back to, you know, films he did, like, 20 years ago to kind of see what he looked like back then, you know, so that was kind of really handy tool to have. Uh, by comparison to Centipede, which is, like, you know, <laughs> it didn't, there's really nothing to kind of base it off at all, like, you know, I wasn't even told to kind of draw, like, draw, like, how the Centipede appears in the promotional art or anything, so that was kind of fun in that regard. And obviously, in the game, there, there are no people, so there, there's nothing really to draw on there. Um, did, did you I played a little kind of elf dude on the, the cover, at least. Anyway. <laughs> well, I, I was going to mention that. Uh, at the moment, I'm holding, uh, I've got in front of me uh, issue one of, of the Centipede comic and also the, the uh, DC, uh, the Patton comic from the 80s. Uh, these are very different things. Um, clearly, you're going for something different here than, than we got uh, in the 80s, so... I, I actually haven't read that yet. Um, I only found out like recently uh, that that existed. You know that they had those kind of promotional Italian comics, and uh, at that time they were reprinting it. Um, I'm hoping. I think they're sending me a copy. It hasn't arrived yet, so I'm gonna. I'm very excited to see kind of what they did with that way back then. Well, I I won't spoil the ending of it for you, but uh, uh, it's a very different thing. Uh, lots of wizards and uh, magic wands and and uh, elves and that kind of thing. So, um, none of the misery of the current series then. <laughs> Did you uh, 
in deciding how to uh, how to approach drawing uh, this comic, did you did you play the game at all, or, or just really talk to Max about just the story that he wanted to do? Um, I didn't get a chance to play the game yet. I'm actually hoping there's a, a new barcade is after opening up in Dublin, and they got a like a whole host of like great arcade games and cabinets over there. So I'm hoping to kind of check it out and see if they have it. Um, or otherwise, I think you can get like uh, I saw you can get like miniature versions of the arcade cabinets, like sure. that just are that game entirely. And uh, definitely, I'd like to try it out anyway, just to kind of have just to be able to say I've played it, you know. Right. Um, but outside of that, no, it was mostly just kind of seeing what Max had in mind. Uh, he's actually he kind of uh, I've been kind of let run and do my own thing really. Like uh, I mean, the way we are kind of approaching this entire kind of Atari line is. Uh, treating it as like a creator-owned kind of um, series, you know, and that, you know, we can kind of design it from the ground up and do what we want with it, more or less, you know, sure. uh, which is really cool, uh, really cool of Dynamite and Atari to kind of let us do that. So so how does that process work? Does uh, does he write a script and, and you have a chance to see it and kind of do, do you have a back and forth as far as what should what the page should look like or, or are you kind of doing this separately or how does that work? Uh, well, in the case of um, Max's writing, uh, he leaves the script fairly open to interpretation. You know, he doesn't dictate any of the, the camera shots or anything, which is kind of the way I prefer because I like to, I suppose, be a director of photography in terms of, you know, what what way we're looking at this, you know, how big the panel is going to be. So, like, um, let me see. Actually, I can read out, like, just for example's sake, I've got a, the 32 script in front of me here. So, like, I'll just give you an idea of, you know, what a panel description might be like. Sure. So... Uh, I'm trying <laughs> trying not to spoil anything here. No? Uh, bu- 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 um, okay, here we go. Yeah, it's a flashback scene, so it's not too crazy. So it says, uh, panel four, Dale's father watches him, Dale, age 11, playing some kind of bizarre Quidditch-esque futuristic game. He's chasing after the ball, but it's futile. He sucks. And then the captains are after that. So that's kind of pretty much it. It doesn't say, you know, from whose perspective it is or what's in the background or anything like that. Okay. So I pretty much kind of get to run crazy with all that stuff. And obviously, I'm sure that's what makes it fun for you uh, when you have that control to to make those decisions. So. Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of it's kind of you know half the joy of drawing this. You know, it's just kind of getting to put all my input and make it my own thing. You know. I had a chance uh, to talk to Chad Bowers and Chris Sims about the Sword Quest comic uh, that they're working on, and in in their case, they credited uh, the artist with with easily 90% of, of what the, the comic looks like and what the characters look like and that kind of thing. Um, do you feel like you have sort of that same, uh, you know, that much control over what Dale uh, Terrell looks like, for example? Uh, yeah, completely. Um, so, yeah, Max kind of had a, a brief kind of description of what he, you know, he, he imagines Dale to look like. Uh, he kind of, kind of some, you know, some character or sort of some actor references just kind of go off, you know, but, and I did kind of some development. I, I started the sketchbook kind of to, I suppose, uh, design the world and its characters and, you know, the, the, the monsters and stuff like that. So, um, again, yeah, I think I, I kind of got, usually I tend to go with my kind of gut impression when I read these things the same way when I'm drawing from a script, you know, the first kind of image that pops into my head is generally the one I kind of stick to. So with Dale, he kind of, even like the very early concept sketches, you know, he wasn't too far off what he actually looks like in the final thing. Um, and actually, just going back, I need to mention that Sword Quest is a fantastic comic. So if anybody in your show hasn't read that, yes, uh, I seriously advise it. Uh, really, really good stuff. And what what the guys were saying about Ghost Rider X, working his artwork is absolutely phenomenal. Like, uh, 
I couldn't get over when I picked that first issue up. Uh, it was just, you know, blew me away. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I enjoyed it as well. I don't want to. I don't want to ask too many specific questions about what goes on in issue one for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. But my impression of Dale, um, he doesn't look to me like the typical comic book hero guy, and I assume that's by design. He looks like just an ordinary, maybe the IT guy at a company or something. Yeah, that's pretty much how uh, that's how Max pitched him, and that's kind of how I envision him. You know, he's. I mean, he's not. He's not like super scrawny. He's not like too dweeby or anything like that. You know, he's just no, kind of no, a. No, not at all. Middle of the average Joe. Uh, I think that's what makes him relatable, you know. And I assume. Plenty of, uh, I assume as uh, as the story goes on, we'll find out a little bit more about him and and uh, you know what how he got to this point. So. Yeah, for sure, and a lot of it kind of. I think every issue kind of you know goes back, delves back into his uh, his past, um, you know, his human relationships with his family and his friends, etc. So you get to kind of you know you get to find out a bit more about Dale. Not just how he kind of got to his position, but, you know, who he is as a person, you know, and what kind of, I suppose, what uh, kind of character he is going up against with Centipede in the long run. Sure. When you uh, pick a project, you know, whether it's Centipede or, or uh, Sons of Anarchy or whatever, what, do you, what are you looking for? Um, what, what, what's the thing that makes you think, okay, this is something I can do? Um, so there's kind of like a, I use kind of a, a checklist kind of system that was um, recommended to re- recommended to me by um, Declan Shelby, who is a, a comic artist that I apprenticed with uh, for uh, just under a year. And he said, when you when you're considering a project, you know, there's <laughs> kind of three things I suppose to kind of uh, keep in mind. You know, uh, number one is it something you think you're you know going to enjoy drawing. Uh, number two is the financial <laughs> aspect of it. You know, is is the money good? Sure. And number three, uh, is this going to promote me as an artist? Um, so, and generally, if I can meet two or two out of those three criteria, then it's a it's a book worth doing. And if I can meet three out of those three, you know, definitely, definitely do it. That's you know, that's kind of that's how I approach a book, I suppose. You mentioned that when they approached you about doing this, they they sort of gave you a choice. Were there any other Atari games that that maybe kind of piqued your interest that you know maybe you'd like to do someday? Um, I haven't thought about that too much, to be honest, actually, because again, like, it, um, they're all kind of just a, a bunch of names to me. Like, you know, I, I, my, I have zero experience with the, the, the franchise. So, uh, I like, I, I, I didn't actually know that they're, um, Chad and, uh, Chad and, uh, oh, oh God, he's going to kill me. I uh, forgot Chris. his name. Um, Chad Chris, and Chris. Of course. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I didn't, I was listening to the podcast you did with them, actually, and it was, uh, it was, uh, cool to hear that they got pitched, like, um, Rather, they were given like a list of like fifty or sixty titles to choose from. Um, that's insane. Like I, I wouldn't know where to start with that, you know. Uh, I, I, I agree. But, um, I thought that was uh, yeah. I thought that was crazy. But uh, there's a lot of games, so there's a lot of potential uh, there for stories. Absolutely. So there certainly is. Yeah, and I've uh, I've even heard kind of one or two other things that kind of maybe in the works. So it's definitely uh, an exciting line. Um, uh, hopefully, it expands further. I'll just jump back for a second. You said you're working on issue number three right now. How long does it take to put an issue together? Um, generally, it takes me, uh, I mean, it varies from artist to artist, but generally, like, uh, for mainstream American comics, you want to be getting it done uh, within four to five weeks um, to keep on time. Okay. Uh, I'd say, yeah, the last issue I just finished, uh, I finished the second issue there like a week ago, uh, or, or maybe further back, but... Um, I think that took me generally, yeah, around four, 
four to four and a half weeks, I think, to draw it. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so around that anyway. Um, and, it, it's generally, go ahead. And it sounds like uh, maybe your part, you're kind of finishing up your part maybe a month or so before it com- before the comic is released? If, if I'm uh, yeah, generally that's, you want to be giving it yourself enough, uh, or giving rather the team uh, around that amount of time, because obviously, I mean, the way it works is, you know, obviously the writer writes the script, I get handed the script and I draw it, and then it goes down to uh, the colorist, the letterer, the design team, the editors, and the target to overlook it. So uh, I'm just one of many people on the ladder that has to pass through before it goes to print. So obviously I don't want to screw those guys over, so I want to give them ample time to kind of work on stuff, you know. Absolutely. Well, Centipede, it sounds like it's keeping you pretty busy right now. Do you have other projects that you're working on or other things coming up that, that you want to mention? Um, good question. Uh, at the moment, it is like entirely my life. Centipede is my life uh, from seven days a week. So, uh, I mean, that's kind of the thing about being like a, an artist and in the industry is like uh, we don't get to work on multiple projects um, like other like other people in the area do. So, uh, yeah, my life is pretty much centipede at the moment. Um, when I'll you're working that hard on a comic, when you're working that hard on a comic, what, what keeps you going? You, you know, it's, like you said, it's a seven-day-a-week thing. Uh, I'm sure at some point you get tired of it during the week. So uh, Yeah, um, it can be fairly tiring. Uh, I mean, it's a fairly isolated, isolated job, as most comic artists will tell you as well. So, um, I mean, uh, d- having a deadline certainly helps in terms of keeping motivated. Uh, I'll say that much, but uh, definitely, I mean, like I've, I'm very, I'm always super eager to see what people think of it, and you know, there seems to be a pretty, uh, a pretty great reaction to it so far. So, I mean, I mean, from both you know, uh, critics and uh, friends and family and stuff like that. So, I mean, the, the thing about like comics is also it's such a tight knit community that um, a lot of people are kind of supporting you behind your back as well, like. Uh, especially within Ireland here, the the scene is so tight knit. It's amazing, you know. Everybody has everybody. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk to me. It's been it's been interesting. I really like the comic so far. I'm looking forward to issue two when it comes out. And I like the. I spent a lot of time with the games. I I like this. Uh, what we're getting now, as far as like Sword Quest and Centipede, kind of expanding expanding on what we already know from the games. And uh, and that's exciting to me. So I appreciate you working on this, and I look forward to what's coming next. Awesome. Thanks very much, Ron. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I hope the rest of the issues continue to impress. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no doubt that they will. Uh, and, I, again, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. No problem, man. Thanks for having me on. I'll definitely tell everybody about it. Great. Thank you. Uh, have a good day. Cheers. And that's our show. Thanks again to Owen Marin for taking time out of his very hectic production schedule to chat with me a little bit about Centipede. I'm very much looking forward to issue two and beyond. So thanks again, Owen, for your time. My thanks also to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, and you know that by now. If you're getting this on iTunes, or if you feel like just going to iTunes and doing this, it would be awesome if you would leave me a review. It makes me feel good. It helps other people find the show. It tingles the tickly bits of iTunes algorithm to move the show up in the rankings a little bit, which helps people find the show, as I said. And it's just a darn nice thing to do. You can also support the show financially, which is also an awfully nice thing to do, on our Atari Bytes Patreon page, or by checking out Atari Bytes merchandise at our Zazzle.com store, links for which 
for both of which are in the show notes. Our website is ataribytes.libsyn.com. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the Atari Bytes Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. And please don't forget to check out my other podcast. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown, for all your Peanuts gang Snoopy-filled needs. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bytes. Dig Dug. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.